Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is being heard just hours after it was recorded, if you're listening on the day it's broadcast. Is that too confusing? I think so. Because it's, um, it's the weekend before Fat Tuesday. It's Carnival Weekend. The big Carnival Weekend. Last week was, was a Carnival Weekend, too. We got two of them. Yeah, here in New Orleans. But anyway, here's a show for you. No, here's the show for you. Starting with little information about superbugs. We haven't talked about those lately because they're still going on. Those are the bugs that are developing bacteria that are developing immunity to antibiotics because of our use of antibiotics, especially here in the United States. Livestock raised for food in the U.S. are dosed with five times as much antibiotic medicine as farm animals in the U.K. That's according to new data uh, published this week in the Guardian newspaper. This raises questions about rules on meat imports under Britain's future outside the European Union. The difference in rate of dosage rises to at least nine times as much in the case of cattle raised for beef. Mmm, dosed beef. And maybe as high as 16 times the rate of dosage per cow in the UK. There's currently a ban on imports of American beef throughout Europe. Gee, I wonder why. Hires of antibiotics, particularly those that are critical for human health, the medicines of last resort, according to the World Health Organization. They ban those from use in animals. That higher use is associated with rising resistance to the drugs and the rapid spread of superbugs that can kill or cause severe illness. It wouldn't be super if they couldn't kill. Antibiotic resistance can spread rapidly among herds and flocks. but can also be spread through eating affected food products, according to the World Health Organization. Antibiotic use in the United States is three times higher in chickens than in the U.K., Double that for pigs and five times higher for turkeys. According to um, the Alliance to Save Our Antibiotics, a U.K. pressure group said, uh, Susie Shingler of that organization, U.S. cattle farmers are massively overusing antibiotics. Nearly three-quarters of the total use of antibiotics worldwide is thought to be on animals rather than humans, raising serious questions over Intensive farming and the potential effects on antibiotic resistance. Why do they use so many antibiotics on uh, animals in agriculture? Because they're in modern agriculture, they cram them so close together that if they didn't dose them with antibiotics, disease would spread like crazy, you see. Also, uh, they use antibiotics on uh, certain farm animals because it helps fatten them up quicker. Well, you want fatter animals quicker, don't you? Really, don't you? The contrast between the U.S. and U.K. in antibiotic use in livestock is in part owing to the effect of British farming organizations and retailers to cut the use of such medicines. The move to do so has picked up pace in recent years as the scape of the uh, scale of the superbug crisis has become clearer, as well as the scape and the goats. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're not number one. Yes, it's true. Still again, the United States has dropped to 12th place in countries with best patent systems. You're crying already, aren't you? The U.S. is tied for 12th place in a Chamber of Commerce ranking of countries' patent systems. Strength, law professor and senior scholar at George Mason University, Adam Mossoff, told the Axios website, the U.S. has a serious systematic problem in our patent system. And he patented that statement. 
No, he copyrighted it. Why it matters, just two years ago, the U.S. was number one. Fell to 11th, uh, sorry, to 10th place last year. Mossoff said this shows a pattern that we're falling and it can get worse. We can fall and not get up. And then we need the thing around our, what we're talking about is the legal system that made possible Thomas Edison and the Wright brothers, he says. The uh, miracle medical treatments we have today were brought to us by the U.S. patent system. Like the little purple pill that was the same as the earlier purple pill, but they had to keep the patent so that that's that's the system he's talking. Anyway, we're not one, num, we're not number one. And hello, welcome to the show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana. We we have been allowed to have carnival this year through the kind permission of the uh, City Fathers in Mobile, Alabama. Indeed. Thank you. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this. It's true. Welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now... Let's try to follow the dollar, shall we? Well, it might not be as easy as you would think if the dollars you're trying to follow are the United States Pentagon's Defense Logistics Agency. The um, accounting firm of Ernst & Young found that that agency failed to properly document more than Oh, $800 million in construction projects. Just one of a series of examples where it lacks a paper trail for millions of dollars in property and equipment. Across the board, this is reported by Politico, the agency's financial mismanagement is so weak. No, the management is so weak. The mismanagement is fine. That its leaders and oversight bodies have no reliable way to track the huge sums it's responsible for. This is Ernst & Young's initial audit of the massive Pentagon purchasing agent. The department has never gone under a full audit. Well, you might say, so what? Well, because Congress has ordered them to. Yes, you can ignore a congressional mandate if you have all the bombs. To some lawmakers, the messy state of the Defense Logistics Agency's books indicates one may never even be possible, one audit, that is. If you can't follow the money, you aren't going to be able to do an audit, says Senator Chuck Grassley, Grassley sorry, a gentleman with uh, an intense grasp of the obvious. The $40 billion a year logistics agency is a test case in how unachievable auditing the Pentagon may be. The agency often has little solid evidence for where much of the money is going. It purchases all the stuff used by the Defense Department, 25,000 employees, 100,000 orders a day on behalf of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and some other federal agencies who smell gravy on the train when they... In one part of the audit completed um, the end of last year, Ernst & Young found that misstatements in the agency's books totaled at least $465 million for construction projects it financed for the United States Army Corps of Engineers and other agencies. For construction projects designated as still in progress, it didn't have sufficient documentation or any documentation at all for another $384 million worth of spending. So the Army Corps has some pals, has some enablers. The agency also couldn't produce supporting evidence for many items that are documented in some form, including records for $100 million worth of assets in the computer systems that conduct the day-to-day -day business of the agencies. The uh, documentation, such as the evidence demonstrating the asset was tested and accepted, is not retained or available. The uh, Defense Logistics Agency issued a statement to Politico say they weren't surprised by the conclusions. DLA is the first of its size and complexity in the DOD, the Department of Defense, to undergo an audit, and we did not anticipate achieving a clean audit opinion in the initial cycles, said the statement. All right, then. Let's stay dirty, because we can't follow the dollar. One thing we can follow, however, is the Olympic Games. News of the Olympic movement. That's how we follow it. With the aid of Jim Ebersole, Jr. 
Well, you know, they're going on now, these Winter Olympics. And uh, the athletes at the uh, opening ceremonies experienced a quarter of the lifespan of the $60 million stadium in Pyeongchang, the 35,000-seat Pentagonal Olympic Stadium. Hey, Pentagon seem to be good at wasting money, don't they? Is an extreme example of pop-up architecture, according to CityLab. That's a mega-event venue with a planned lifespan shorter than the career of a snowboarder. The stadium will be used four times, and then it's slated to be torn down. The alternative, of course, worse. Pyeongchang is a rural outpost, about 45,000 people, one of the poorest areas of South Korea. If the stadium isn't torn down, it would likely be fated to join a mighty herd of white elephants from Olympics past. Infrastructure that has gone unused decades after the athletes went home, yet continue to drain public money in upkeep costs. The Pyeongchang Olympics are set to cost as much as twelve, sorry, $13 billion, far beyond the $8 billion South Korea projected when it was when it won its hosting bid. That never happens. The uh, high-speed train line built for the Sochi Olympics cost nearly $9 billion, proved to be all but useless after the event ended. It's wasteful, there's no question about it, says Andrew Zimbalist, a sports economist at Smith College and frequent critic of Olympic Games excess. Stadium serves as the latest solution to an all-too-familiar conundrum facing cities that bid to host the Games. They're required to launch and finance big-ticket developments in order to win the bid. In many cases, the infrastructure constructed to host the events has little purpose after the Games. If there was a need for infrastructure, if it's a catalyst to bring in foreign trade, says Zimbalist, if all of that were true, maybe it makes sense, but none of it is true here. As an economic investment, if there were long-term benefits... Olympic hosts create legacy plans. Those plans often fall through. Montreal took 30 years to pay off the debt from hosting the 1976 Summer Games, as a good example. In Rio, plans to turn stadiums into schools were later shelved. Most venues from the Athens Olympics became instant ruins. The Montreal Olympic Stadium is now being used as a refugee welcome center for asylum seekers. The Olympic Stadium is one of many venues in uh, Pyeongchang, likely to be temporary, intentionally or not. A plan to bring a hockey league to the hockey center fell through. A proposal to turn the Olympic speed skating venue into a refrigerated seafood warehouse never gained traction. The downhill ski course is slated for demolition. That development was derided by South Korean environmentalists. It removed tens of thousands of trees in a virgin forest. That's nice. And for the first time ever, Olympic figure skaters have been allowed this year to perform the music with lyrics at the Winter Games in Pyeongchang due to recent rule change. In order to appeal to a younger audience, sing along, won't you? It's the Olympics. And it's a movement. We all need one, whatever the price. Every day. Ladies and gentlemen, you often hear the phrase from um, 
libertarians and conservatives, Republicans and conservatives in England and conservatives all over the place. The, the phrase is the magic of the market. Just let the market work its magic. It'll figure it'll sort everything out. This from uh, The Guardian in London, more than half of 1,900 ultra luxury apartments built in London last year failed to sell. Raising fears that the capital of the Great Britain thing will be left with dozens of, quote, posh ghost towers. PGTs. The swanky flats complete with private gyms, swimming pools, and cinema rooms were lying empty last week as hundreds of thousands of would-be first-time homebuyers struggled to find an affordable home. The total number of unsold luxury new-build homes, rarely advertised at less than a million pounds, has now hit a record high of 3,000 units. The rich overseas investors they were built for turned their backs on the U.K. due to Brexit uncertainty and the hike in uh, a tax on a, a, a tax, not a tax, hike in, in a tax on second homes. Builders started work last year on 1,000 apartments, priced at more than anybody in London can really afford, but people from Russia and Middle East can. Only 900 of those 1,900 have been sold. There are an extra 14,000 unsold apartments on the market. It would take at least, according to... uh, Real estate data experts uh, it would take at least three years to sell the glut of uh, ultra-luxury flats if sales continue at their current rate and if the current new bills are started. Ambitious property developers have a further 420 residential towers, each at least 20 stories high in the pipeline, and most of those are luxury as well. A property buying agent says the luxury new build market is, quote, already overstuffed, but we're just building more of them, unquote. The magic of the market. But at least we're not screwing up the planet. Oh, wait. Why, this must be news of the warm. Won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. When Arctic permafrost soil thaws, greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere... And they are ancient, well, not ancient, but old gases. No no gas like an old gas, except that the uh, carbon currently escaping from lakes in northern Alaska is relatively young, according to a study by researchers at University of California, Irvine, where it never snows. This finding is crucial because, according to an article in fizz.org, because much of the biomass stored underground in the Arctic is ancient, dating back to the Pleistocene, which ended more than 11,500 years ago, says um, the leader of the study, which appears in Nature Climate Change. When the bulk of that very old carbon is recycled and released, we will be looking at a massive net increase in emissions of the gases that worsen global warming. Researchers using carbon-14 dating techniques have determined that the carbon being emitted by the Arctic lakes accumulated in recent decades and centuries versus several millennia, which means there will be less of an impact on the climate from them. These young carbon pools most likely include comparatively fresh photosynthetic products flushed flushed into the lakes from their surrounding watersheds, says another researcher from uh, NASA. So 
not, you know, not the best news, not the worst news, but a new study finds polar bears in the wild have higher metabolic rates than previously thought. And as climate change alters their environment, a growing number of bears are unable to catch enough prey to meet those new higher energy needs. A study published in Science reveals the physiological mechanisms behind observed declines in polar bear populations, says the lead author. We've been documenting declines in polar bear survival rates, body condition, and population numbers over the past decade. He says this study identifies the mechanisms that are driving those declines by looking at the actual energy needs of polar bears and how often they're able to catch seals. Energy drinks for polar bears. I'm seeing a big new market. University of Wyoming researchers led a climate study that determined recent temperatures across Europe and North America appear to have few, if any, precedent in the last 11,000 years since the Pleistocene ended. The study revealed important... I remembered that from the other story. The study revealed important natural fluctuations in climate have occurred over past millennia, which would have naturally led to climate cooling today in the absence of human activity. One researcher says uh, from the University of Wyoming team... I would say it's significant the temperatures of the most recent decade exceed the warmest temperatures of our reconstruction of the last 11,000 years by half a degree Fahrenheit. study covers a period that begins at the end of the Ice Age and when there was still an ice sheet covering Canada. You think, it's, you think they're polite now? Should have seen them then. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now News of the Godly. If you think the kids who are participating in the uh, Tide Pod Challenge, you've seen about that, are uh, nuts, wait to hear this. By the way, the, the, uh, a YouTube star, quote-unquote, is being uh, censured by uh, Google. They're cutting him out of the Google Preferred program, which lets him collect lots of ad dollars, because he just did a uh, video. This is the guy who uh, posed with a body of a suicide victim in Japan recently, and he got slammed for that. Now he's tasered a rat on camera, and Google thinks that's improper. I was on a TV show some time ago, late night, network television, where a guy you know, former United States senator from Minnesota, used uh, several different techniques to kill cockroaches on television live, like sticking pins in them. But that's another story. This story is a South African self-styled prophet who sprayed his followers with the insecticide Doom, has been found guilty of assault. Lethibo Rabalago, widely known as the Doom Pastor, well, it's, it's accurate, it's truth in advertising, you can't, was also found guilty of contravening the Agricultural Stock Remedies Act. He claims the insect repellent he used a couple of years ago could heal cancer and AIDS. Sentence yet to be handed down. The uh, judge, the state had proved his case beyond reasonable doubt that five people who made uh, assault charges against him were violated. Magistrate said the fact that the uh, complainants were sprayed on their faces with doom makes the offense the worst of its kind. Yeah, I guess. He revealed some of them had suffered detrimental side effects like coughing for more than seven months after the incident. Rabalago, who runs the Mount Zion General Assembly, not the Security Council, was arrested after it emerged he'd used the product to cure his followers of various ailments. Two years ago, he claims afflicted church members have been delivered after being sprayed with doom. In photos circulating on social media, he was seen spraying the insecticide directly into the eyes and various body parts of his congregants. 
He told uh, BBC at the time he'd sprayed the face of one woman because she had an eye infection. Claimed the woman was just fine because she believed in the power of God. And the power of doom, I guess. His case had been delayed on a number of occasions, most recently when his lawyer forgot his glasses. It's a class team all the way. South Africa has seen a wave of incidents where church members have been subjected to unorthodox rituals which purportedly healed them of various ailments. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Always good. Friends are calling because they're falling down. I've joined the circus, but I ain't no clown. There's five eaters and some midgets, too. Around the corner, right next to the zoo. Call me crazy, and it's probably true. Please, to call me now, here's a clue. What's black and white and red all over? A newspaper story about a murder. Crazy and I feel half-hearted Down the well of wishes of the dear little Come to find out we are all connected Mosquitoes bit me and they got infected has come to
Tell me how fat can it to stay get You're on the water with a fishing Boil it down and sit at the table Peel and eat till you're not able The autopsy showed you were full of fish A broken heart and a come true wish Now if fire burns out on the levee The weight of the world is not that heavy As when you were a little kid Now don't forget to pick up the lid If you went on back, would you change a thing? Wait and see what tomorrow will From New Orleans, Louisiana, this is Le Show. And now, what the frack? Human activities that change stresses in the Earth's surface. Yes, the Earth feels stresses, just like you and me. Those human activities like fracking and wastewater disposal are known to cause earthquakes, even in areas where earthquakes are not historically common. Understanding the, the relationship between these processes and earthquakes is crucial to mitigating seismic hazards, you would think. This is from EOS.org, Journal of Geophysical Research. To assess the connection, some researchers zoomed in on a sequence of earthquakes that occurred in central Arkansas. Earthquakes in Arkansas. That's an innovation. Between 2010 and 2011, at that time, several companies were extracting natural gas from the Fayetteville Shale, one of the largest gas fields in the country. Soon after wastewater injection... I should say they they inject the wastewater back into uh, where they got the oil and gas from. You know, way deep down those uh, those deposits near near like where uh, plates might move, not dinner plates. Anyway, the wastewater injection began in July 2010. Scientists started to detect seismic activity in the surrounding regions, which led to a series of felt earthquakes. Don't get the wrong idea. These are earthquakes that were felt, not made out of. Anyway, when a magnitude 4.7 earthquake struck on February 27th, 2011, the Arkansas Oil and Gas Commission 
issued an emergency order to stop all wastewater injection. After that, seismicity decreased, but for months afterwards still remained higher than the historical rates. So the researchers analyzed seismic activity in the area before the quake. Arkansas only has a few instruments to record ground shaking because, you know, never happened. So they used an advanced data mining algorithm inspired by Shazam, the music recognition app, to detect the 1,740 largest quakes. Small number of earthquakes were correlated with wastewater injection, which has been noticed in other states like Texas and Oklahoma, but the vast majority correlated with the fracking operations themselves at 17 out of 53 nearby production wells during that time. Compared to quakes normally caused by fracking, these events were bigger, more numerous, longer-lasting, and farther away from the well, all indicating a high level of stress in the area. Hey, Earth, take a chill pill. Deeper, larger faults would also have been highly stressed and unstable, easily prone to slipping and generating felt earthquakes greater than magnitude 4. This study bolsters the case. You need bolsters? Here's a case for them, that earthquakes are triggered and only, not only by wastewater disposal, but also by fracking itself. What the frack? Now, since I'm nearing the falsetto range, time for APAC news. News of APAC! The latest plot twist in Afghanistan involves our friends the Chinese, according to Asia Times, For the past two months, Beijing and Kabul have been discussing the possibility of setting up a military base alongside Afghanistan's border with China. We're going to build the base, and the Chinese government is committed to help financially provide equipment and train Afghan soldiers, says a spokesman for the Afghan Defense Ministry. Talking to the Agence France. We're going to build it, and the Chinese government is committed to help the division financially provide equipment and train the Afghan soldiers, he added. Chinese Foreign Ministry admitted Beijing was involved in capacity building in Afghanistan. U.S. issued no comment. A military base will be eventually built in the mountainous Wakhan Corridor, a narrow strip of territory in northeastern Afghanistan separating Tajikistan from Pakistan. Nice neighborhood. A lot of Kyrgyz nomads hang out there. Beijing's strategic priority is to prevent Uyghur fighters of the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, who've been exiled in Afghanistan, from crossing the corridor to carry out operations across Xinjiang, an autonomous territory in China. There's also the fear that ISIS, jihadis from Syria and Iraq, may also use Afghanistan as a springboard to reach that part of China, even though, you know, the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda guys don't like each other. Beijing is concerned about this uh, East Turkestan Islamic movement. As early as 2013, the head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, supported jihad against China in that province. At the heart of the matter is China's Belt and Road Initiative, the New Silk Road, which will connect China with Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, And the stability of one of its links, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. $57 billion worth. It's seriously compromised if terror threats abound in Central and South Asia. The U.S. is preparing an onslaught against insurgents in Afghanistan when the Taliban's fighting season starts in the spring. Hey, it's fighting season. Get your seats now. American troop reinforcements are arriving, and an array of additional bombers and ground attack aircraft are lined up at the two main American bases at Bagram and Kandahar. 
This is from the Times of London. The B-52 dropped 24 precision-guided bombs this week on Taliban training camps in northern Afghanistan, the biggest attack of its kind by a B-52. Fighting is continued throughout the winter, but the Taliban always gears up for a spring offensive after the poppy crop has been harvested, or the crappie pop. U.S. commanders with their Afghan counterparts are preparing for an attack that causes casualties among the insurgents on a scale that may encourage the less extreme faction of the Taliban to consider peace talks with the Kabul government. We're making war to make peace, like you always do, don't you? Despite new signs of optimism, concerns have been raised in the U.S. Congress about the merits of the campaign in Afghanistan. Senior senators cast doubt on the prospect of any form of victory after 16 years, despite the President Trump's revised strategy under which the U.S. military has greater flexibility to confront the Taliban and 4,000 more troops to do so. The Pentagon's spending $45 billion a year in Afghanistan, but they don't know where. Taliban have demonstrated their determination to remain a potent threat by carrying out devastating attacks in Kabul recently. U.S. military officials say Russia is providing money and machine guns to the Taliban. Russia denies this, but admits exchanging intelligence with them. The uh, U.S. commander in Kabul says that under the new, tougher strategy, the Afghan forces supported by the U.S.-led coalition are on a, quote, path to win, unquote. Also, for the first time, Afghan special operations forces have been trained to take on the role of forward air controllers. Uh Uh-oh. American commanders are confident with extra U.S. military advisors, the Taliban will feel the impact. Commander, U.S. commander says this year will bring a significant change to the battlefield. That's how it looks from here. Let's tune in over there. From Afghanistan Public Radio, your number one source of news about Afghanistan Public Radio. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, checkpoint capital of the world, I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're bitch and moan, the Out of Power Brothers. <laughs> Welcome to a new, fresh edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan muscular dystrophy teleton, keeping the torch lit. Well, my younger brother, fighting season is still two pomegranate harvests away, <laughs> and already this town is having more explosions than a Pakistani gas mine. Mm. We shouldn't laugh. We didn't. Uh, but yes, our Taliban friends are letting the government of President Khani know that they're not going away, mm. and our Pakistani friends are not letting them go away. Well, I am but a humble Toyota dealer, <laughs> but it seems to me the conclusion is obvious. Which is by a tundra? No. The rest of us should go away. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is John, a longtime commander of Operation Endless War, second-time caller. General, welcome. I heard this week you have uh, a great new plan for achieving something like uh, victory in our great country. Uh, yes, sir. We have unveiled an action plan to reverse uh, the tide here in-country. That's correct. Mm. What a coincidence. I have a great new action plan for winning the lottery and marrying one of the Spice Girls. Let's compare plans. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, General. Well, that's a phrase I never thought I'd hear you use. <laughs> <laughs> I think what many of us here at Karzai Talk Central are wondering... And there are only three of us. <laughs> <laughs> but still, how is this new plan 
different from all the other American plans that so far seem to have ended up uh, like all the Russian plans and all the British plans. Well, now let's, let's, let's don't go all the way back to Alexander the Great now. I'm doing officer's mess in ten minutes. Well, sounds to me like you're an officer's mess all the time. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> but, 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 Hamid, mm-hmm. uh, I do get the thrust of your question. And, of course, a certain number of Americans, those who seem to think that supporting the troops means criticizing the war, are asking that question, too. Great. What's the answer? I'm due at public radio mess in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the first time since the first time, we're now implementing a three-pronged approach. The first prong would be a, an infusion, a reinfusion, if you will, of American special forces, special ops. And special K. <laughs> <laughs> you have to forgive my brother. His needs are special. <laughs> yes, sir. And regular forces to advise the Afghan component, uh, which in turn is the second prong, mm. an Afghan component which now has the lowest desertion rate of any national army in the entire Central Asia theater, mm. not counting the former Soviet states, which have highly untrustworthy metrics. So the Afghan armed forces are now well-trained and ready to fight? They're more available for that training because they're still in uniform and at or near base. And and, and they've had that training because when I was president... Well, when you were president, they were still shooting muskets. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they were shooting muskrats, an invasive pest. <laughs> well, anyway, General, yes. are they now, as you Americans like to say, all trained up? Sir, I'd like to say that uh, two-thirds of that phrase is right on the money. And with one word substitution, we could uh, stand by the entire verbiage. Mm. Well, I know from personal experience that all the American money that has flowed into our country has fueled a great deal of corruption. Now, to be fair, that's the fuel my brother runs on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Well, uh, the third prong, uh, which I mentioned three of earlier, Mm. is uh, we have instituted for this new plan a quarterly system of inspections and audits, which are best in class. And the class would be what? The previous system, which was monthly. Hmm. General, do you have a question for us? Yes, sir. Yes, I do. Uh, Putting our cards straight on the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. mission, like the NATO mission which preceded and prefigured it, is short on human intelligence or human. So if any members of the Taliban are listening to your broadcast and would, so to speak, like to come in from the cold, would, would you encourage them to do so? Well, uh, what might you be offering them? I'm absolutely authorized to offer them heat. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think public radio hosts are allowed to encourage anything, but thanks for the call. I didn't think we were allowed to thank anything either. What are they going to do? Give us a smaller studio? (laughs) (laughs) They can't do that. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, I'm Mr. Deng. Chinese attaché for public diplomacy here in Kabul. First-time caller, long-time fan. Wow, a Chinese fan. Mm-hmm. I hear those are valuable. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to pardon my brother. He can't. I haven't been convicted yet. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Deng, yes. I have to ask you, mm-hmm. are you any relation to the former wife of the American media mogul Rupert Murdoch? Well, there are about a hundred million of us on the mainland, so I suspect the answer is I probably won't be getting any of the inheritance if and when. (laughs) Mr. Deng, your country is building a base in and with my country. Uh How do you get along with the Americans here? Well, of course, we see good relationships with all nations. That's that's one reason for our one belt, one road, one facial recognition system project. Of course, 
your American friends have uh, had a military involvement here for quite a long time, and they don't seem to have had that much to show for it. Oh, now, wait a minute. Heat's not nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And to be brutally frank, Mm. we don't see much of the Americans up in the north where we've been active. Oh, so maybe you two powers can just carve us up into your respective areas of interest? Uh, uh, That's a bit harsh, isn't it? But speaking of harsh, I do have a question. Oh, we love to take questions. We ignore them, but we take them. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give away the formula. (laughs) Well, in that mountainous border area, we'll we'll be building the friendship base. Friendship is good. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there's any halfway decent dim sum in the province. What I've experienced so far is, shall we say, sub-Taiwanese in quality. Mr. Deng, I have one piece of advice for you. Learn to love pomegranate juice. (laughs) (laughs) The Americans still haven't. (laughs) Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Afghan Trucking Association. Trucks they're what break down in front of you. <laughs> Legal services for Cars I Talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us next time that we persist with another edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And this year, right after Mardi Gras, comes Valentine's Day.
And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Mercedes-Benz apologized on Weibo, the Chinese microblogging platform, for posting an unspecified but, quote, deeply wrong message in social media. Press reports in China say the marketer had posted an inspirational quote from the Dalai Lama on its Instagram account, accompanied by a photo of a white luxury car on the beach. Look at situations from all angles and you will become more open, the quote said. Chinese media outlets captured screenshots. Foreign brands including Marriott, Delta, Zara, and Muji have run into trouble lately with missteps over how they describe China's territorial claims. Marriott made the mistake of listing Tibet as independent countries when China claims sovereignty over them. China is not even accessible to Chinese masses. A China-based representative from Mercedes' parent didn't immediately return an email seeking more details. Mercedes' statement said that the company will immediately take measures to deepen our understanding of Chinese culture and values, including for our colleagues overseas, and to regulate our actions to prevent such incidents from happening again. Hollywood's director, Quentin Tarantino, apologized this week to Roman Polanski rape victim Samantha Geiner for suggesting in a radio interview with Howard Stern years ago that the then-teenage girl wasn't really raped and even, quote, wanted it. It was Tarantino's third apology in recent weeks and months for things he has said or done over the years. He'd apologized earlier for making Uma Thurman drive a rattletrap car in uh, Kill Bill. Canadian Olympic officials met this week with counterparts from Russian athletes and apologized over an incident that may not have actually involved a Canadian. At issue, an altercation that took place when a Russian coach said he had been verbally abused at a canteen in the Olympic Village about the participation of Russian athletes. Of course, Russia has been banned from the Olympics because of the doping thing. At least the gymnastics team has been. Tensions running high among athletes and officials over the presence of more than 160 Russians who are participating even though their country was banned because of the doping thing. Canadian officials say they were informed by the International Olympic Committee that the person who had engaged in abusive behavior, whose identity remains unclear, may have been with their delegation, and the mere suggestion was enough for them to offer an apology. We said, hey, if something happened, we're sorry, said a Canadian official, an if-pology, if ever I heard one. A Northeastern University professor has apologized for saying at a university event that he wouldn't mind seeing President Trump dead. Barry Bluestone said the remark was unfortunate and wrong and that it slipped out at the end of a two-hour lecture. Prominent London, Ontario, Canada radio talk show host apologized on air after female politicians and advocacy groups accused him in an open letter of verbal abuse and harassment of women. The San Diego Unified School District has apologized for a racially charged cartoon that was printed in the La Jolla High School newspaper last month. It depicts an entire spectrum of racial and ethnic stereotypes, each seen in a sweatshirt with a different phrase. The cartoon was published last month. The images led to a protest on the school's free speech wall. San Diego Unified School District declined to speak on camera about the editorial process. Again, we want to say clearly the cartoon does not represent the values of our community. The language used in imagery is offensive and hurtful. The principal called the cartoon an error in judgment and a breach of all values they hold dear. Values don't apparently include satire since um, there were no captions, but the letters H&M a reference to the clothing retail company's own ad that showed a young African-American boy in a sweatshirt that read, Coolest Monkey in the Jungle. You remember that apology? They were satirizing that, you see. Is New Hampshire a country? No, it's a state, but Southern New Hampshire University has apologized to a student who failed an assignment because her professor insisted Australia is a continent and not a country. 
We've apologized to Ashley, replaced the instructor, and are reimbursing her tuition for the course, the university said on Twitter. Organizers of South Korea Olympic Thing apologized to the Iranian team before Friday's opening ceremony for what they called a misunderstanding over gifts of Samsung mobile phones. See how absurd, how deeply into the absurd zone this gets. The apology diffused a spat in which Iran summoned South Korea's ambassador over reports that athletes that its athletes would not receive a $1,100 smartphone each. These are amateur athletes, ladies and gentlemen. News reports said 4,000 of the phones were being given to athletes attending the games, but that athletes from Iran and North Korea would be excluded because of sanctions against the two countries. Samsung said the IOC was responsible for distributing gifts at the Olympic, had no further comment. After the apology, the Iranian sports minister said he was satisfied. We've reached our goal. Iran has four athletes at the games. The IOC has confirmed the Iranian athletes are entitled to receive and keep the phones. The North Koreans were told they could keep the phones but couldn't take them back into North Korea. As I said, deep into the absurd zone, ladies and gentlemen. And the Loyola Loyola University Dining Hall in Chicago had a Black History Month menu that included fried chicken. They've apologized. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week. You know, post-Mardi Gras era. I know, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to envision, too. Uh, over the audio device of your choice, this one right here. Or another one. You could choose another one. You don't have to be repetitive. I say you don't have to be repetitive. And it would be just like nobody else being fired from the White House for spousal abuse this week. If you agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, Le show Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson, and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, yes, there's still email, I think. The playlist of the music heard here on and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Great St. Patrick's Day gift. All at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter. At the Harry Shearer. Also, check out the Twitter account of my friend Derek Smalls at Smalls Life.
The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from New Orleans. Have a safe and happy Mardi Gras or just another Tuesday. Tuesday.